Hey, I am so pleased today to have with us my dear friend Carl Wheeler. Carl has been a friend of mine since our uh, Western Bible College days in Denver, Colorado. That was, I don't even care to think how long ago that was, but it was a long time ago. Uh, he's been a dear, dear friend, and he's been here at CCC many times, and so would you give him a warm CCC welcome? Great to have you here, buddy. Why don't you think he's talking? Do you think he had a stroke? I don't know. Maybe he forgot what he was going to say. This is weird. I don't think you're supposed to do that in church. Maybe he's praying. No, I know him. <laughs> I think he's just weird. I'd like to have a conversation today. Uh, and by that, that I mean I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. I'm sorry. That was that was a little weird. Like, hey, I got a question. Wait, actually, I I like conversation. So if you have a question, feel free to ask. But I'd like to have a conversation today or talk about courage. And if if I were to you know say to you, hey, what is courage? Any answer you give. Honestly, I mean this sincerely, would be right. You're, you're not going to get that wrong. But most of the answers w- would tend towards those familiar images of courage. Um, something to do with, you know, bravery is another way we, we, we say that. We think sort of of military. We went, a whole bunch of us went last night and saw Dunkirk. Marvelous movie, beautiful movie, and it's, it's, it's the, Winston Churchill called it the miracle of Dunkirk, but it's really fueled by human courage, accurate description. I loved Hacksaw Ridge, the, the story of the Seventh-day Adventist soldier who by conscience could not carry a gun and is the only Congressional Medal of Honor winner who has been awarded as a noncombatant, saved 75 lives. It's, an, again, a marvelous story, an incredible picture of courage. The problem with those images is that they, they lead us into a very narrow path of courage. This idea of, of sort of overcoming in, in very rare, once-in-a-lifetime moments, the desire to stay alive, basically. I also think, you know, that courage can be people that do things the very first time. You know, the first guy to bungee jump. You know, who... who, who Who's volunteering for that? that? That seems weird. I love Woody Allen. Woody Allen said the definition of courage is the first man who ate a raw oyster. I like that. That's kind of, <laughs> looked at that and goes, looks yummy to me. Um, but again, it, it, it's accurate to say that courage is, is the ability to overcome a self-preserving instinct. But I think it's too narrow to think of it as these rare moments. I think courage, as we're going to have this conversation today, is, is sort of an opportunity that probably gets presented every day. For example, I've been coming to this community for over 30 years now. I live in Denver, and Kevin and I have been best friends for a long, you know, all these years. 
there was a couple years where we weren't, but anyhow, that's a difference. And, um, and, and so I, I can't tell you how much I want you to like me. Like, it's weird. Like, I've almost, almost my whole life, I've been preaching or speaking. And, and, you know, I know my rhythm. I know Wednesday, Thursday, I'm going to start having this anxiety about being here. And, and it's not because you've, you, I, you've always loved me. Like, it's, it's, it's weird. I don't have a lot of experiences of those people in Springfield who hate me. But, and I know... I know all the rules about speaking, and I know the one about win them early. I know that it's probably not advantageous to this whole story of you liking me for me to sit, not even smiling, not even making eye contact. And knowing that you're telling yourself stories about that how much I want to control the story you tell in your head about me. And this experience we're going to look at in the life of Jesus is, a, is a, I think, a story of courage where Jesus is not, is not telling us how to live by the words he says, but by simply letting us watch how he lives. We could spend all day brainstorming moments of courage in the scriptures and, you know, great heroes of the faith and all that, and they would all be true, but we would never come to this story. We could be here all day. You would never guess right on this one. So I'm just going to tell you where it is. It's in John 11, and it's the famous story of Jesus' best friend or one of his best friends, the, the family that we discover Jesus is most intimately connected to, the story, the, the brother sisters the sisters and brother, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. And this is the story of his, of his illness. Let me begin with this. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Just real quickly, don't comfort yourself too soon with the idea that, well, Jesus is going to make it all better. Imagine 2,000 years ago, the dying process. They know he's dying. There isn't a lot of palliative remedies, meaning ways to make pain go away. People, when they're dying, are most often in pain. And Jesus knows this. So some of the strangest words in the Bible. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. So when he heard that Lazarus, who he loves, is dying... your brain automatically knows how to fill in the blank. But that's not what happens. He stayed two days longer 
in the place where he was. Now, let's just be honest with the scriptures here for just a minute. This is not Jesus staying two days longer because he, man, he had, a, he had a bunch of things to get done before he could leave. Like, he had to get the garage cleaned up, had to get, you know, get the lawn mowed, you know, all the kinds of things where we might delay for something is because we, we, we say, no, because I've got all of this going on. That's not what's going on for Jesus. Jesus could have just as easily just left. Here's the first example of courage. Courage is the willingness to not meet the good expectations of people we love. Appropriate expectations. It's not inappropriate for them to go, hey, Jesus, remember that time you stayed in our house? And remember that time, and I, and I, 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 I worshiped you, and we loved you, and remember all those stories, and remember how connected we are? Now, my, my brother is really sick. He's dying It's not unreasonable to say, will you please come? And Jesus basically says, not now. It's a weird, weird story. Here's what I think is common among the followers of Jesus. We have lots of experiences that we share together. One of them is, that we, we have lives that are going to meet lots of bumps in the road. And in those bumps in the road, we often together will have a moment where we cry out to God, God, help me. And collectively, our most common experience when we ask God to help is God will say to us, wait. 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 Most of us spend much of our Christian experience waiting for God. It's not that he's not coming. It's not that he says no. But he most commonly says, wait. And in that period of when we wait, we're going to tell ourselves stories. I had a therapist tell me, She said, Carl, trauma is not necessarily the experience that happened, but is the story you tell yourself about the experience that happened. I grew up, many of you know this, I've shared some of these stories before with you. You know, I grew up in an alcoholic home, I'm a kid, and my mom would often be drunk in the afternoons, and you know, I'd be embarrassed if my friends came over or, you know, all kinds of things that happened with that. She was unpredictable, unreliable. And I remember begging my mom to stop drinking. That's a real event. You have real trauma in your life. I'm not saying, oh, just, oh, it's not that big a deal. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the story you tell yourself about that is what will sort of set the course of your life. And here's the story I've told myself most of my life. My mom loved alcohol more than me. That isn't true. She had an addiction. They're not related. I told myself my whole life because of that, I'm really not worth loving. That'd be fine if it was just isolated. It was just my mom and that's all that... But that's not how life works. You see, the story influences so many other things. In fact, 
probably every relationship. So years ago, not that long ago, maybe 12 years ago or something, 15 years ago, I was doing a lot of traveling and um, you know, maybe speaking at different places. And my wife, April, uh, was coming to pick me up at the airport. And she was 20 minutes late. I remember it so clearly. I can remember where I was standing. I can remember. And as I'm waiting for her to pick me up, the stories begin to spin in my head. She doesn't really love me. If she really loved me, if she really cared, if she, if she were excited to see me like I'm excited to see her, she would have been here. But the reason she's not here, and I was convinced of my facts, the reason she's not here is I'm not worth loving. And this story, and I know it sounds weird, but I'm telling you, this is the story in my head. And so as soon as she arrives and, she, and I open the door, and all that wanting to see her, all that anticipation I had, that's not what she experienced. And I unleash on her just this venom. Crazy. Like she, she is literally bewildered. She's trying to explain why she was late. And I can't hear it. April and I know enough now, after 36 years of marriage, this is one thing we know, that when we get into trouble, we at least can go, oh, yeah. This isn't about this moment. This is about a story that I've believed. The story you believe. Oh, my. And because that's true for us, we then want to manage the stories others believe about us. While we're waiting for God, we will be tempted to tell ourselves stories. Story number one is there must be something wrong with me. Maybe I didn't ask right. I'll let you figure out the theology on this. I don't think I buy it, this idea that if there is, quote, sin in your life, God can't hear you. I think David, just a little brief moment, I think he's talking about his own existential kind of experience, processing. I don't know that theologically that's necessarily true because it would make no sense because then God could never hear anybody in one sense. But regardless of how you feel about that, that's what happens often is we begin to think there's something wrong with me, there must be sin in my life. So I'll confess, I'll, I'll do more confessing. I'll confess everything I can think of. I'll make up a couple things just to be sure. You know, just, I, don't, I cover my bases. Because I can't stand this. There, there's, if God is making, if I'm waiting, there must be something wrong with me. Because if there's not something wrong with me, story number two is what? There's something wrong with God. We all are going to intersect with this in different ways. Here's how I intersect with that. God loves everybody. So I intellectually think that. I know, like, that's his job. Like, if you ask me, what is God? Oh, God loves everybody. But see, I had this because of my story and because of growing up with a half-sibling and stepbrothers. I believe God loves everybody, but he likes some people more than others. And I'm not one of them. It's not a healthy story. It's a bad story. And here's what's weird. is Jesus knows that when he says no to the request, which is a reasonable and good request that he could meet, he knows that his friends are at risk of telling 
a bad story about him. I, um, I wonder if we reread what Jesus' response to Martha would be if we read it like this. When he meets her, he finally, after two days, he, he then goes and Martha meets him out on the road. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? In other words, is that the story you tell yourself about me? Because that's the true story. I am... I have to admit, as I think about in my own life, the people that I really love, the people I care deeply, deeply about, and when they ask me to do something that I can do, but maybe for whatever reason, I shouldn't, I almost always still say yes. I'd love to hide because, well, you know, I'm just a servant. Oh, I'm just, you know... that. God wants me to be a servant. I'm just, you know, I'm just loving them. When really what it is, is I'm afraid of what they will think of me if I don't say yes. And I don't have the courage to live with that. The next example of this courageous life that we would never think of as being courageous is one of the more famous verses in the Bible. It's famous because in English, it's the shortest verse. If you went to Bible camp as a kid and you know you got points for every verse you memorized, I guarantee you memorized John 11.35. Right? Everybody did? Feel good about it? You've been memorized? Like, and if you, I don't know if you, have you ever gotten stuck where you had to memor, you know, like you had to say a memory verse? This one, you can always pull this one out. John 11.35. Let me give you the story. I'll pick it up in about verse 32. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That is true. That is true. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. John eleven thirty-five. 35. Jesus wept. And as soon as you read that, those words, a little ding goes off in your brain, a question. Almost every commentary will spend now from this moment forward all of its energy answering that question. Almost every sermon will answer that question that is ding in your head when you hear Jesus wept. And here's the question. Why? Why did Jesus weep? And I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> because the Bible never does. And because that's not what's important here. 
the question implies, it, it, it reveals our bias that there has to be a reason and there better be a good reason if you're a man, if you're God in flesh and you're crying, you better have a good reason for that. Can I just say this as an aside? There is no such thing as an inappropriate tear. That's a lie. Oh, I remember back to that 12-year-old kid in an alcoholic home with a, an abusive and weird stepdad, and we're at the dinner table. This is one of my clearest memories. And my mom, would, would, when she got drunk, she felt all empowered, and she would say mean things, and I would start crying. And sometimes even before anything got said, I could start crying. There was, something weird would happen. I was just an emotionally fragile kid. And my stepdad said what all stepdads, I think, probably say. Why are you crying? I didn't have a good reason. And then he would say, what? Do you want me to give you something to cry about? No, I'm good. <laughs> I, I actually think I got this one covered. I like, is, is this not enough? Do you want more? Because there is this, this human, I don't know what it is, but we, we don't like crying that doesn't have a good reason for it. And we feel better if we can know. We feel better. A lot of current research on addiction is, is teaching us that addiction is not rooted in simply a craving to feel something good. But the more powerful motive is to simply stop feeling. One of the most powerful, they believe now, experiences that humans have that move towards addiction is the experience of loneliness. They've done research that simply putting somebody in a relationship with somebody else can help in the sober process. We want to believe that there has to be a good reason for crying. I remember when my granddaughter was born. My, my daughter, her husband had been married, I think, almost 15 years now, 16 years. And my granddaughter is five. You can do the math. They selfishly waited for 10 years. 10 years. I told them, I am not going to be one of these parents who is going to be nagging you and asking you, when are we getting a grandbaby? I'm not going to do that. That's wrong. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put away some money. And every year there's not a grandbaby, some of that money's going to go away. <laughs> I'm not going to be pressuring you into this. I, I, I will own. I, and I have... I, I long to be a grandparent. For a, honestly, I wanted a do-over. I was 19 when I started being a dad. I think I wanted a do-over. And I um, I got the call. My granddaughter is adopted. We got the call that the birth mother was in labor in Riverton, Wyoming, 
I jumped on an airplane, landed in Jackson, rented a car, picked up a car. I can't remember how I got in a car and, <laughs> and had to drive about two hours from there, 10 minutes before I arrived, I got the phone call. She's here. So I walk into the room. There is the, the birth mother had made a, and I'm so grateful, had made a vow that she would not drink, drink or do drugs, not do anything bad for nine months as a gift to my granddaughter. And so <laughs> all her friends are there with booze. Like, <laughs> like, nine months is over, baby, and they were killing it. They were partying. That was one happy, happy group. And then here's my daughter. She's holding my little Frankie and my son-in-law, and I think I can't remember who else was there. And they're ha- everybody is smiling and happy and laughing and hugging. It was the most joyous thing. And I come in, and they hand me the baby, and I begin to uncontrollably sob. And I'm the only one. Like, it is... Um, you think a minute and a half of silence at the beginning was awkward. This was awkward. Like, it was so, and I mean, not just, you know, not a little tear of joy. Waves of uncontrollable sobbing. I could, I'm, I, could, I had to give the baby back and go out. Yeah, isn't that weird? So my instinct was to what? Walk out of the room. Just because I'm embarrassed. I'd get, you know, I'd try to get my poop in a group, and I cannot believe I just said that. I am so sorry. That is, <laughs> I am so sorry I said that. That is, strike that from the record, Your Honor, bailiff. Or whoever does it, I am so sorry. Any, it doesn't matter. I'm going to cry from embarrassment now. But anyhow, I, so I walk, I, I walk back in. They hand me the baby. Same, I mean, I cannot hold it together. (laughs) See, I feel it in this moment. I want to explain to you why. It'll make me feel better. I wanted them, and I I couldn't talk, and I couldn't explain it, and I had to just be weird. Courage. It takes unbelievable courage to feel. Just to feel whatever it is you're feeling, to not push it down, to not numb it out, to not find something that will make the feel go away, but to feel is unbelievable courage. I'm going to give you a little, a little help, a little hint. If you, like me, ever have the opportunity to have the privilege to be with somebody who's having a cathartic and emotional moment. I'm going to give you a little tidbit of something that will be very helpful, but you're going to have to fight all your instincts. This sounds weird. Never, never give them a Kleenex. Sounds weird, right? Slobber. I've been, I mean, out the nose. I mean, bad stuff. A hundred percent of the time, if you hand somebody a Kleenex in that moment, They will stop crying, and they will not pick back up at the same level of emotive catharsis that they were experiencing. Now, if they grab I'm not saying if they grab a Kleenex, you know, go, no, Carl said no. (laughs) I'm I'm not saying that. 
But I'm saying if you give somebody a Kleenex, you're telling them, I need you to clean that up a little bit. You don't mean to, but you're actually saying, you're making me uncomfortable. I am... I was with my um, I was with my dad. I my dad and I had a strange, strained relationship. You see, when I was six, they when I was three they divorced. When I was six, they remarried. But I lived in Alabama, and I would see my dad every other weekend. But when I was eleven, I moved to Colorado with my mom and my stepfather. I didn't see my dad for about two and a half years. And then the court ordered that he would, they were fighting about who was going to pay for the plane tickets. And the court ordered that my dad would have to pay. And so I would then have to, I would go every summer um, and spend my summers in Alabama. I remember when I graduated from high school, I sent my dad an invitation and but he didn't come. I remember when I got married, I called my dad and told him, but he didn't come. I remember when my daughter was born, and I called my dad, but he didn't come. When my son was born, my wife almost died, but he didn't come. I remember when I graduated from seminary and from college, he didn't come. And I remember when my daughter got engaged all those years ago, and I, I remember I was there officiating the service. My dad, as I had told him about the wedding, he'd said he would be there. I knew he wouldn't. And as I was performing the service, I still remember having this, this compartmentalized moment where while I'm speaking life to them, I am also having a dialogue, and I'm looking at the audience, soaking in the fact that I do not see my father. And as I'm speaking life to them, I make this vow. I will never, ever let him hurt me again. I will shut that down. I felt good about that. I thought I had stumbled upon the secret of avoiding pain, is to just make a vow to never care again what somebody who you love will do. I shared it with a spiritual director, with some friends, Weird. They did not think that was such a great idea. And it wasn't long after that vow that I had the opportunity to speak at a, at a big event in Atlanta. My dad was still living in Alabama, and we were talking on the phone. I told him about it. And he said, hey, I'd like to be there. I thought, well, whatever. But my dad came. It's a kind of a big auditorium. I can still picture him up in the second row of the balcony. He's a big man. I could see his silhouette. Because we had planned this, I knew that for the first time and the only time in my life, I was going to confront my father about the feelings I had had. And so the next day, we spent the day together, and we got in the car. We'd only been in the car five minutes. I said, Dad, I've got to tell you something, and it's hard. And I shared with him what it was like all these years 
of wanting him and him not there. And my dad erupted in hours and hours of weeping. He shared with me that, that the reason he'd never came was because of the shame he felt and how that shame had driven him into addiction after addiction after addiction. The next day, he dropped me off at the Atlanta airport. I didn't know this at the time, but I learned later that from the airport parking lot, he made a couple of phone calls, and one of those was to an old lost best friend. And he shared with him how he felt free for the first time in decades. A week later, when the phone rang and it was my stepmother, I knew instantaneously what the story was going to be. And I did my father's funeral. I say that because my dad spent most of his life running away from really big feelings. Jesus often teaches us how to live by telling us but sometimes by just showing us. That courage is the willingness to disappoint those people who you love and the willingness to feel even really big feelings. But let me, let me end the story the way this story ends by just simply reading then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And then Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he's been dead four days. Can I just pause for a minute? Jesus can't, can't win here, can he? I mean, holy crap. They're all upset because he won't come. And then when he comes, they're going, well, now you're going to raise him and he's going to stink. And we can't be having stinky people. I don't, I don't know what he was supposed to do, just to be honest with you in that moment. Okay, well, let him die. You're right. Yeah. I just, what I like about the Bible is it's accurate recording of real life that is still today. Still today. I, I, I love that. So I'm sorry about the little delay. But anyhow, picking back up, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, if you listened to the right story, you would see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. He said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they might believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with a linen cloth, and his face, and he and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let him go. The story always ends. The gospel, the good news is Jesus wants us free. I wonder if a piece of being free is a courageous life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your model of what it means to really be a human. Oh, God, I pray for me and I pray for my friends here, for those that I love, that you spare us the stink of death when we live so afraid, trying to manage everybody else's story about us 
and trying to avoid the big feelings. Lord, I pray that you help us trust your good story, the story that gives life. Amen.